Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. And uh, I'm your special speaker. We get to talk about the fact that Jesus is alive. It's the resurrection. So, a lady, my wife was here last night, and she was sitting next to a lady, and she's like, I, I, I don't, I'm not wearing an Easter dress. Why are we talking about Easter? <laughs> so, um, you can relax. It's okay. It's fun to talk about Easter during other times of the year because the uh, resurrection is um, the central hope of Christianity. Um, See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened three days after he was put to death on the cross by uh, Roman soldiers and the Jewish authorities. It's the foundation for every Christian hope. Without the resurrection, Christianity is a cruel joke. It's a charade. It's a facade. It's, it's, it's a vapor. It's a myth. Um, but with the resurrection, we have a tremendous hope that transcends this life, and it has very real application for how we are going to live in the future, something that we'll touch on as we get towards the end of it. So today what we're going to do, as we often do with stories like this, is first we're going to retell the story. So we're going to tell the story of the resurrection. And then we're going to explain why the resurrection still has significance today. All right? So tell the story. Explain why it matters. This is what we call the what, so what, now what form of delivering a message. So let's pray. Let's get into the text. Jesus, we thank you that you are the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you have not been bound, defeated by death, and that through you, God, that we enjoy and experience eternal life. Father, quicken us to pay attention now, to hear your words afresh. Holy Spirit, convict us of sin, draw us to repentance, empower us for life in your kingdom so that we look forward to the day in which you will come back, set all things right, and we will see you face to face. Until that day, God, help us to be your people, faithful, committed, disciples of your name. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, first let's start with the story of the resurrection. Last week, if you were here, we talked about Jesus on the cross. We left off last week with Jesus hanging dead on a cross. This was a Friday afternoon, probably around 3 to 4 p.m. At sundown of that evening began the Jewish festival of Passover. It was a high and holy day, and like every Sabbath, it meant that no work could be done for about 24 hours. So, it fell to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich and wealthy man. He was part of the Jewish council, but he was also a disciple of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man. And here's what he does. He's got a political connection with Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And so he goes to Pilate and he requests that he be given custody of the body of Jesus. And when Pilate hears that Jesus is dead and needs to be taken down from the cross, he's surprised because Roman crucifixions normally last for days, not hours. And so Pilate, he calls the centurion who was superintending the whole crucifixion process. This centurion was a man's man. He got there because he's a professional killer. That's his job description is to execute people. He is an expert in death. And so he signs off and he says, Pilate, I shoved a spear into this man's heart. Blood and water flowed out. Game over. He's dead. You can take him down if you want. So Pilate grants Joseph of Arimathea custody of the body. And Joseph of Arimathea, along with several women, Mary Magdalene being one of them, wrapped the body in a linen shroud. 
And John's gospel mentions that a man named Nicodemus, do you remember him? He was the guy in John chapter 3 that came to Jesus by night. Well, Nicodemus shows up again this one other time at the very end of the gospel, and he brings along with him 75 pounds of spices. And this is how they would inter a body. They would wrap him in a linen shroud and pack it with spices. And so Jesus is now in this kind of mummified state filled with almost 100 pounds of spices, and they lay him in Joseph's tomb. Joseph was a rich man, and he had a tomb similar to something like this, hewn out of a rock. And it was his family's tomb where he and all of his family members would eventually be laid, but it was new, it was recent. So Jesus was the first person to be laid in that tomb, and they roll that stone back in front of the entrance to the tomb, and they walk away, and it's Friday afternoon at sundown. They go and they celebrate the Passover. And then on Saturday, the following day, the Jewish leadership, they call a meeting with Pilate, the Roman governor. And here's what they say. If you've got a Bible, you're turning to Matthew 27. You're going to pick up the story in verse 62. It says this, The next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered before Pilate, And they said, sir, you remember how when that imposter said while he was still alive, well, after three days I will rise. Well, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and this last fraud be be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, well, you've got a guard of soldiers, so go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sealing the stone meant that they would literally take a wax seal on the front of the stone and seal it like you would an envelope. And what that meant was that is if you break this seal, if you tamper with this stone, you do so by punishment of death. And they set a Roman guard, professional soldiers whose job it is to keep that tomb undisturbed there, and that's Saturday. Now I want you to pause for a moment and consider this from the disciples' point of view. The last time we saw the disciples was in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night before Jesus gets arrested and taken away. And uh, they're all sleeping, and then they get woken up in the commotion, and when they see that Jesus has been arrested, what do they do? They vanish into the wind. They flee, every single last one of them. And Jesus goes through his crucifixion or his trial, his arrest, his trial, his beatings, and his crucifixion mostly alone. John, uh, the gospel writer, is one of the only disciples who's actually at the foot of the cross during the whole time. All of them have gone away. You see, what had happened was is that they saw Jesus as the Messiah, which was God's anointed one, and their understanding of what a Messiah was was primarily political. So the Jewish people were under the heavy boot of the Roman Empire. They were an occupied colony. They saw the Messiah as being this anointed leader who would raise up a military force and kick out the Romans and establish Jewish authority and rule, and the disciples were hoping that they would be lieutenants on Jesus' left and right-hand side in this earthly kingdom that he was going to establish. Nowhere in their imagination did they see a crucified Messiah. Two words that are a contradiction in terms. The Messiah was victorious. The Messiah was not a criminal who died on a cross. And so when Jesus went to his death on the cross, the dream died. For them, the Romans had won. The movement was over. And they just wasted three years of their life and they're trying to 
pick back up the pieces and try to figure out if there's a place left back on dad's fishing boat where they first got picked up. What were the disciples doing while Jesus was in the grave on Saturday? The Bible says that they were hiding for fear of their lives, huddled away in an upper room with the door locked, lest the same fate fall upon them that fell upon Jesus. So that was Saturday. It was a dark day. But Sunday's coming, right? So Sunday. Sunday, since the disciples were so afraid, it fell to women to be the hero of this story. Here's uh, chapter 28, Matthew's gospel. Uh, First 10 verses, it says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, uh, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary went to see uh, the tomb. Uh, The other Mary is not Mary, Jesus' mother. There's a ton of Marys in the gospel. This is some other lady. Um, (laughs) And behold, there was a great... uh, Before we move on, Mary Magdalene, uh, just so you know who was... uh, Mary Magdalene was a woman, uh, potentially a woman of ill repute, um, who um, Jesus had cast out seven demons. All right? Uh, So you know her reputation. She didn't get invited over for dinner a lot. Um, And she was the woman who had broken that expensive um, jar of spikenard, that perfume, chapters ago, and spread it over Jesus' feet. She was one of the people who was with Jesus all throughout um, the trial, the arrest, the beatings, and the crucifixion. She was there. She was the one that helped Joseph of Arimathea wrap the body and place it in the tomb. And it's her who comes very early. John's gospel says that the sun had not even come up yet. And behold, verse 2, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat on it and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men, Roman men, soldiers, agents of death, men who were not easily frightened or scared and certainly do not fall down. Boom. Knocked over. And yet, who's left standing? Oddly enough, the women. And so the angel strikes up a conversation. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Love that. Every time an angel shows up, first words out of his mouth. Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, key phrase. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up to him and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him and Jesus said to them don't be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there you will see me two key points first the angel says to these ladies see the place where he lay the tomb is empty and the evidence is clear Jesus's body isn't there But did you notice that when Jesus shows up and he says, do you know what he says? Remember, these disciples had abandoned Christ in his hour of need. And you know what he says to them? Go tell my who? My brothers. Not go tell those low-down, backstabbing losers. No, my brothers. My brothers. I'm going to come and I'm going to see him. You see, when Jesus comes, even after we screwed up, he oftentimes comes with a gentle hand. Because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. All right, the crux of Christianity is that phrase, see the place where he lay. See, if Jesus is still there, then Christianity is a facade built on a myth. But if Jesus isn't there, 
then we've got um, some really good news. You see, because Jesus' resurrection is the proof to the claim that he made that he was the Son of God. The resurrection validates Jesus' divinity. He's now triumphant over all things, including now especially death, the last enemy. Um, These facts take a while to sink in. I understand if you're skeptical. Naturalism and science teaches us that when a man or a woman dies, that's it. They die. People don't come back from the dead. No, you may be resuscitated, but three days is not a resuscitation. Three days is a resurrection. People don't get resurrected. Um, Well, you'll be right in line with the disciples because they didn't believe this either. They were really skeptical. It took a while for the facts to sink in. And so the other gospels kind of fill in the rest of the story. So here, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary have now seen an angel who said Jesus is alive. They turn around. They actually see the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who says, go back and tell the disciples. Remember, the disciples are huddled together for their very lives in this upper room thinking every, our world has just been shattered. And here come these women early in the a.m. before anybody's had any coffee. And they say, you wouldn't believe what we just saw. Jesus is alive. And you know what they did? Luke's gospel tells us that they considered these women's story to be, quote, an idle tale. And this is a cultural point because in first century Judaism, the testimony of a woman was not even permissible in a court of law. All right, so there are some who say that the resurrection was a, was, a, was a myth fabricated by the church centuries later to help prove its existence. Well, if that's the case, then they did a horrible job. Because if you're going to construct a story in which you want people to believe that Jesus is now alive, the people you would not use, and all four Gospels are unanimous on this point, that the primary eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women, specifically a woman from whom seven demons had been cast out. You do not pick these people to be your primary eyewitnesses. If you're going to try to tell a story that's going to convince people, it would have been laughable. The only reason that all four gospel writers would have said this is if it had actually happened this way. But Peter, this rubs him the wrong way. He can't just sit there. And so he runs out of the room where they were all staying, and he goes to the tomb, the place where Joseph of Arimathea had laid the body. And there are some people who say, well, maybe Mary had gone to the wrong tomb. This is highly unlikely. Joseph was a rich man. The place where his tomb was was a piece of purchased property, and then, like now, there are records kept for where those lots lie. And Mary, the two days before, had also been to this tomb. Peter and John run there immediately. There seems to be no confusion about where the body of Jesus was. And Peter, who's older, is outrun by John, who's younger. And John gets there, and the Bible says it's light enough now that he can stoop down and he looks inside the tomb and he sees that there's these linen shrouds that are kind of fold, that are kind of like in a pile off to one side. And Peter, true to form, comes barreling right past John, ducks into the tomb, and he stands there. And he sees the linen shroud, and he also sees um, like a a face cloth, a a handkerchief that was folded up and put to one side, which is a strange little detail. So uh, stay-at-home moms rejoice. Uh, The very first thing that Jesus did after he came back to life was fold laundry. It's in the Bible. I'm not sure what altogether that means, but it's true. So anyway, stay-at-home moms, hear me out. And stay-at-home dads, too. Um, your job is vital. 
it's exhausting. I have three kids that are under three or three and under. And we're tired and my wife is tired. But the work that is done, especially in those vulnerable years at the very beginning, is so vital to raising kids, knowing that somebody loves them, cares for them, is in their life. And so please do not despise all of the exhaustion and the ickiness of what it means to be a parent of young children. God is with you. His strength is alongside you. What you're doing is you're being a reflection of the way that God, how he deals with us because the Bible says that God gently guides those who are young and nurtures those who are weak. And so stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, it is not culturally cool to be in that role. Forget all that. Know that we love you. We're grateful for you. Thank you for the work that you're doing for our kids. That's very, very vital. All right, we gotta move on though. Okay, Peter and John believed that something amazing had happened. Like, okay, maybe Jesus is alive, but cognitively, they weren't, the wheels weren't totally turning around yet for them. And so, oddly enough, like I guess a couple of guys would do, like, huh, tomb's empty, that's kinda strange. You wanna go back home? Yeah, I think we should just go back home. <laughs> so they go back home. And uh, Mary Magdalene stays, bless her. Mary Magdalene stays. The Bible says that she's weeping. And it's odd because Peter and John had just been in the tomb, and as they leave, now Mary enters the tomb, and her experience is totally different. She doesn't see dirty laundry. See, she's two angels dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot, and they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? We're gonna pick up the story. This is John chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but you'll see it here. Verse 14 says, having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus and Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, now hold on just for a moment. You'll notice that Mary didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, she mistook him for being the gardener. This is an important point because Mary was quite close to Jesus. And so it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't physically not recognize him. So it asks, begs the question, to what kind of body did Jesus get resurrected into? Now, if, you're, if you know the Bible, you know that Jesus also brought people back from life during his earthly ministry. There are records of three different people that Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus being probably being the most famous example. The difference between Lazarus and Jesus is that Lazarus raised to life only to die again. When Jesus, that's a resuscitation, when Jesus gets resurrected, he puts off the earthly mortal, corruptible, decomposable body and puts on something entirely different. The Bible says that he put off mortality and he put on immortality, that he was still human being, flesh and blood. In fact, when he would show up to his disciples here in just a little bit, the first, one of the first things he does is he asks for a piece of, a, a meal to eat because he says, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit, I have bones and flesh and blood. But it was a different kind of physical existence. Jesus had things that he could not do beforehand. The Bible says that he simply appeared in the room where the disciples were passing through a locked door. So his body possesses, if you will, supernatural or heavenly elements to it. So his resurrection wasn't to the same kind of life 
that he had beforehand, but to an eternal, ongoing life, which is a clue to the kind of resurrection that we will all experience one day, is that we will put off that which is corrupted by disease and sickness and cancer and tumor and, and brokenness, and we will put on that which cannot be broken, that which is immortal, that which is not subject to decay, that which will live forever in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a physical resurrection that we anticipate. We are not disembodied spirits playing harps and white robes on clouds somewhere. It is a very tangible, very real eternity that we look forward to because when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected to a whole different kind of very physical but very eternal life. So there's that. So he says, Mary Magdalene supposes him to be the gardener. She says to him, sir, if you've, if you've carried him away, just, just tell me where you've laid him and, and, I'll, and I'll take care of him. I'll take him away. And then here Jesus says to her, he says, he says, Mary. And it was that moment when Jesus said her name that changed everything. And she turns around and, and the, the, the moment, the light bulb turns on and she says to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It's a, it's a sign of affection. You see, Mary had an encounter with the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he whispered her name, and she knew that she was loved and she was safe. So here's this beautiful moment between this disciple, this woman Mary, and Jesus, who's the first person to encounter the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so that was Sunday morning. But you remember that there was that Roman guard that was set there at the tomb that had been knocked over. So what happens with them? So Matthew picks up this story because this is now um, kind of a bummer for the Jewish leadership because these guys now have to go back and... um and the Bible says, pick this up, uh, Matthew 28, verse 11. It says, while they, that is the women, were going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Imagine this conversation. So I know you paid us uh, to make sure nothing happened to the body in that tomb. And um, hate to tell you, uh, he's gone. Hey. Uh, <laughs> There may or may not have been an angel. We, we don't know. <laughs> um, so the chief priests, uh, the Bible says, and when they had assembled with the elders and they took counsel, here's what they did. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and they said, tell people, quote, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. On the scale of zero to 10, how believable is this story? Hey. I'm gonna go with zero. Here are Roman men. Okay, let's be clear on this. They're not ninnies. This is what they're trained to do, okay? And they're guarding this tomb with their very lives. This is their duty. They're in foreign land, and the governor, the Bible says, says, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble, namely keep you and your head intact. So they will took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Notice that this in itself even proves the resurrection, because the first thing that the disciples did when they went back to Jerusalem in the, in the book of Acts, their primary message was, Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, Christianity dies on day one because the Jewish leadership simply says, we've got the body. These guys are nuts. Don't believe what they say. But the Jewish leadership even couldn't, they can't deny the fact that the tomb is empty. So what do they have to do? They have to create an alternative narrative that explains the facts, and this is it, that somehow the disciples launched this covert night operation where they came in whilst they were sleeping, 
trained guards on watch, don't sleep. While they were sleeping, somehow managed to roll away that big stone without waking anybody up, dragging a dead man filled with 100 pounds of spices out, rolling the tomb back, and somehow nobody, doesn't make sense. Furthermore, it wouldn't make sense that even if that were the case, why would the disciples then to a man go to the death to uphold this hoax? If the disciples knew that Jesus' body was still dead, had not been resurrected, then why would they tell a lie that got each one of them killed? And how do you then explain the fact that we here today, over 2,000 years later, celebrate the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ along with billions of people around the globe? A great effect has a magnificent cause. The only cause that explains the effect of the church today is the fact that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. The disciples, um, men don't die for a lie. They die for the truth. And their truth was that Jesus was alive. The tomb is empty, and the resurrection really happened. But here's why the resurrection matters. The resurrection matters because it's the central message to Christianity. It's what makes it distinct. If you read the first sermons that were preached in the book of Acts by the apostles, and to be an apostle, you know what the definition was? It means that you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. You had to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. That was their job description, bearing witness to the fact that the resurrection was there. When you look at those early sermons, what they talk about isn't primarily Jesus' teachings, love your neighbor as yourself, go the extra mile. Those, those, though those things are massively important, that wasn't what they were preaching. Neither did they preach about Jesus' incredible works, the fact that he was a miracle worker that calmed the seas and raised the dead. Well, the primary emphasis of every sermon in the book of Acts was this, that Jesus had died that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus came back to life. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 affirming the fact that the center of Christianity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What saves? The gospel. The gospel is the good news, and he's about to define it. But he says, you got to hold fast to this word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So here he's going to remind this group of people what the essence of the gospel that saves you is. He says, I delivered to you as of what? First importance. If Paul had an elevator pitch to give you about what the gospel was, if he had 60 seconds, do you know what he would focus on? He would say this. Here's what, I, here's what I received, colon, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul saw this unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have time to get into how the Old Testament foreshadows and prophesies everything that Jesus experienced, but everything about the resurrection was the central message of Christianity. And this is a matter you're gonna have to decide for yourself. On the validity of the resurrection, you cannot remain neutral. Because the essence of genuine Christianity is the fact that Jesus is now alive. And if you abandon or forego that, you've abandoned the heart of Christianity. Here's the cause. Here's the option. Either Jesus is still dead and his work on the cross is invalidated, Christianity is a joke, or... He's alive, and we have hope everlasting. 
Again, this is a decision you'll have to make for yourself. The evidence, as I see it, is strongly in favor of the fact that Jesus really did raise from the dead to a whole new kind of eternal life. The disciples believed it, they preached it, they gave their lives for it, and the church is now witness to the fact that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. Without the resurrection, simply put, there is no Christianity. So you've got to decide. The second thing is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Right? The resurrection, that it actually happened, that it's historical fact, is the foundation for the belief, the hope that Christians have that death is not the final answer. Life is not all that there is. Right? Here's what uh, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit later on in the chapter. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Work out the logic here. How, why? Wasn't Jesus' death on the cross sufficient? What does it matter if he came back to life after that? Why is it if he's still dead, you're still in your sins? Um, anybody ever visited someone in jail? I won't get into it, but I've had the chance to do it more than I care to. And um, what separates me from the person I'm visiting behind bars? I'm free to go, right? The court system has nothing against me. My record is clean, as opposed to the person behind bars who is serving their sentence. When do they get to go? When they've satisfied the terms of their judgment. True? When they've done their time, then what? They walk out the front doors. Remember how I told you last week that in uh, Colossians 1, it says that the record, the legal demand, the record of debt that was written down for all the sins that we committed, God took that and he nailed it to Jesus' cross so that Jesus now paid our record of debt, right? Well, guess what the resurrection emphasizes? That was the judgment. Death was the judgment upon Jesus, he died in our place, taking what we deserved. But guess what happened? He walks out of jail, the tomb, as a free man because he has satisfied the conditions of the punishment. God looks at that and says that my wrath has now been satisfied. You are free to go. The sacrifice is now valid. Without the resurrection, Jesus simply dies for his own sins, remains in the tomb, and we are left on our own without anyone to die on our behalf for us. Therefore, we're still in our sins. Does that make sense? Jesus walks out of the tomb as the victory march against, I, the work truly is now finished. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why does it hurt so bad when you get the news that somebody's got cancer or that your house is going to get foreclosed on or that some pain has just entered your life? That hurts bad if you believe that that's the only life that you get, that this is the only chance for health and happiness that you have. But the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, tell us that this life isn't everything. That we get to live in a day, currently now, but we look forward to a day in which we will be resurrected to a body that is not subject to decay and death. This is why Paul says a little bit later on, he says, when the perishable, that is our mortal bodies, put on the imperishable, the immortality of our heavenly bodies, the, mort the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
Paul says that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. I've had to officiate memorial services, funerals for people. When a person dies knowing Jesus, guess what? It's not the last time we'll see him. Our hope is that we get to live on in eternity with Christ and that all those who put their faith in him will not ultimately go down to death because death has been beaten and no longer has power or sway over our lives. But the same God who worked powerfully to raise Jesus Christ from the dead will also do the same for us because we believe in him because the same power works mightily in us as well. So this is the glorious hope of Christianity. Distinguishes it from every other world religion and ideology. Nowhere else do we see this notion of a God dying and raising back to life so that those who believe in him may do the same? We put on imperishable, eternal life that is ours through faith. And see, this has very practical implications. Because now if you know that you don't have to cling on to this life as though it was everything that you have, what are you now? You're now free to offer your very life to Jesus Christ and to put it in his hands and trust him that though he may lead you through a course of discipleship that leads with your own death or more practically a small series of deaths of abuse and abandonment and frustration and people mocking and ridiculing you because of your faith, Well, guess what? You're free now to stand firm because this life is not all that there is. You're free. You're not bound up by the fear of death. That doesn't mean you live irresponsibly, foolishly, or stupidly. Of course not. But what it means is that you're now free to follow Christ with abandon wholeheartedly, knowing that even if it leads to your death in the service of the king, that that is not the end. That that is not the end that Jesus has an incredible future, an eternal one for everyone. It also means this, that if those who are in Christ are resurrected, those who are outside of Christ also experience the same. And that at the resurrection day, when our bodies become revived and we receive that immortal, that immortality. See, everyone lives forever. And those who believe in Jesus do so in the presence of their Savior, enjoying unbelievable joy in the light of the Lord. But those who don't believe in Jesus also live forever in unbelievable agony, separated from the presence of God. So we all have eternal life, but it's up to you what kind of life you choose. Through faith in Jesus Christ is what transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the glorious Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have the resurrection. I wish it was otherwise, but it's not. And for those of us who are, here's our mission statement. This is 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are a chosen race. God loves you. He knows you. He went after you. He's a royal priesthood. What does it mean, a priesthood? A priest is someone who simply mediates a relationship between God and human beings. So what's your job description in your neighborhood? It's simply to get people in your neighborhood to get to shake hands with Jesus. Make the introduction. Right? Jesus saves people. You don't. You don't have to worry about that. Jesus saves people. But your job is to be bright enough that through you, Jesus can be visible. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Grace is what saves us. But grace isn't cheap, so there's still a Christian ethic that we abide by. 
because holiness is a major theme in both the Old and New Testaments in which we, which we're saved by grace and we're made holy by grace. So don't get apart from that. We're a people of his own possession. Here's why. That purpose statement, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's God's plan for your life? What's his purpose? What's his will? It's this. It's that you would be a mouthpiece. The louder, the better. The more genuine, the better that says God is glorious. And my life bears witness and testimony to his goodness. And you live on display, a city set on a hill is what? Not hidden. So you live joyfully. And where does this mean you have to live? In and among the people who need Jesus the most. Because he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. You've been adopted. That's an identity issue. You're God's. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Sojourners. It means that this world is not your home. You're just walking through. But that doesn't mean that you get to disdain what you're experiencing right now because this is the earth that God has made. And guess what? It's still good. And he's coming back to make all things new. So while you're here, you seek the peace of the city in which you dwell. You pray for your leaders who are in authority over you. You work passionately, compassionately, empathetically for the case of the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the alien, seeking to exercise justice and mercy the same that you have received from God the Father. Because guess what? God doesn't give you his gifts so you can hold on to them like some kind of scrooge. He gives you his gifts so you can open-handedly go into the world being generous because you know you're receiving from the unquenchable spring of Jesus Christ's blessing. All right, so you abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Christians are called to be distinct, separate from the world, in it but not of it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Men in business, do not cheat, do not slander, do not lie. The money is not worth it. What is worth it? A name that is above reproach. Keep it honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they're just going to see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God. What does that sound like? That sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Do good works so that people may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. What? On the day of visitation. The day of visitation is when God comes back and sets all things right. So we live in this time between the times. Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, is now victorious. Satan is defeated. The war is over. We won. The battle still goes on in which we have to abstain from the fleshly passions, in which we have to live as people, mouthpieces, making God glorious in the eyes of our communities. And we look forward to the day in which God will come back and set all things right. See, Jesus Christ He raised us, and he is raising us from the dead. My encouragement to you is believe, repent. How do you know you're saved? The Bible says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you confess your sins, Jesus is there. Remember how he was? The disciples had abandoned him, traitored him. He's like, my brother's. See, there's nothing you've done that makes God so angry with you that confession cannot heal it. Jesus' blood covers literally all sin, all time, all places, all people. If you're walked away from God, come back. He's kind and compassionate. He wants you to be one of these people that is a mouthpiece for his glorious grace. 
He wants to turn your life story around and bring restoration to it so that you can vocalize, that you can live out a genuine say, I was lost and now I'm found and my hope is not in me or this world but in the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the rest of us, we get to live, we get to live, we get to live in the power of Jesus' resurrection knowing that we can't lose. Though they may slay us, Yet will I trust him. I will trust him that he will raise me again at the last day and I will live with him forever in glory as an adopted child of God. I can't lose. So I'm now free to pursue his plan for my life, not mine. And this is applicable at every age. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503 503- Two six six forty four forty four. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.